Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn, and today is such a special day. It's our 100th podcast. OMG! I'm so, so, so excited. Um, It seems like only yesterday when I started. And I started because my friend Joe Waters from Selfish Giving, he had a wonderful podcast. And he said, Carol, you've got so much wisdom. Why aren't you doing it? Well, I investigated the medium and it looked like something I could do. You know, my history was always not just doing great work, but it was also because in the earliest years when I started in the 80s, it was proving to people that purpose could be business strategy as well as having an impact in society. Well, 30 pieces of research later, lots and lots and lots of clients, um, wonderful positions, 30 years at Cone, five years at Edelman, and now six years at Carol Cone on purpose. Um, I've really seen the practice grow up and it's no longer a nice to do. It's a have to do. So Purpose 360, I do it for you. I do it so we can invite guests from all sorts of different areas, C-suite leaders, um, authors, academics, social entrepreneurs, not-for-profit leaders. I have met so many wonderful people doing the podcast, and I'm going to give a few shout-outs to some of my faves. I'd like to thank Kristen Kenny. She has been my absolute right hand. Um, she's got a journalist's heart. She's an amazing writer and editor. She's helped me to secure guests, prepare for guests, write amazing questions. It really pulls out wonderful, wonderful information. So thank you, Kristen. Couldn't do it without you. Pete Wright, uh, because he's been our incredible editor. And then we've had some wonderful, wonderful interns over the year. Um, this past summer, Casey Sheehan. And I'd also like to thank my friend Chris Noble, because he partnered with me in the beginning. Uh, Martin Whitaker, the CEO of Just Capital. I've watched Just Capital grow, and they have been such an amazing resource to truly help create data and commentary and lists and reviews and indices around stakeholder-based capitalism. Thank you so much, Martin. Um, I got to give a shout out to uh, Alex Thompson, who um, we did a wonderful very early on podcast with him from REI, and we talked about the genesis of Opt Outside. Well, now he's the chief communications officer for Thomson Reuters, and they're cooking up some great purpose work, and we're going to be able to announce that soon in the in the new year. Abology Ganapati who's the Chief Social Responsibility Officer from Tata Consultancy. I've had two wonderful shows with him. You've got to listen to those. You know, in one of his shows, he said, Carol, you know, purpose is the new technology. And I went, what? He goes, well, listen, you know, about 15 years ago, every company wanted to be a technology company. But now every company wants to be a purpose company. And I will tell you that TCS, they have such embedded purpose that their turnover rate is absolutely tiny. Their their retention is between 87 and 89%. It's amazing. Listen to that podcast. You know, the, the shows were so great. And at the end of every show, we always ask for three insights. And so we've taken those three insights and we've put them into an ebook. So we have an ebook from the first 25 shows. That's edition number one. Please download it from our website, carolconeonpurpose.com. And then you can also, we're going to have the second ebook coming out uh, later this year. You know, I learned a lot from these podcasts and made new friends. And last year during the lockdown, the big lockdown with a COVID, I saw a lot of purpose happening. And some of it was great. A lot of PPE and employees really jumping in and helping their neighborhoods and their, their medical heroes. But then I saw a lot of purpose purpose washing. And so I got really angry. And so I started writing and writing and writing and writing. And what was a blog then became an essay. And so I'm we're going to, in our show notes, we're going to put a link to that essay. It's really wonderful. It talks about the key tenets um, of authentic purpose, because the next 50 or maybe 100 shows, I'm going to be focusing on embedding Because it's no longer if an organization practices and has a purpose, it's now about the power of their purpose. You know, how can the show get better? It can get better if you send me suggestions. Who can I interview? What kind of questions should I ask? 
really engage with us because I'm doing this for you. And yeah, it is fun for me to do it too. I make great new friends. Also, a lot of themes came out from these many hundred podcasts. Themes such as what is authentic purpose? Story doing versus storytelling. How do you galvanize employee? My number one stakeholder that I've talked about for over 30 years. And then what lies ahead for business and social purpose? When I started my podcast and I gave a lot of speeches, of course, um, out in the world because I wanted to raise everybody's knowledge, I would always end my speeches with this line, what is your purpose? But now, because of COVID, the pandemic, because of the transparency afforded by social media, it's no longer a nice to do purpose. It's a have to do. So I'm going to end my commentary before our 100th podcast with David Goldberg and Founders Pledge with this question to you. What is the power of your purpose? Thanks for being great listeners. Please share the show with anybody that you feel can learn. It's great learnings. It'll speed up your abilities and those of your partners to do this work with greater authenticity and impact. And so let's get on with the show. Thank you so much for listening and being a great community. David Goldberg is a fascinating young man. You know, I asked him, why did he create Founders Pledge? You know, he's not getting rich and famous off of it. I mean, he's getting a tremendous amount of psychic happiness and well-being from it. But he says it very simply. If not me, who? If not now, when? If not me, who? If not now, when? Is the wind beneath his wings driving him forward to truly take largely a cohort of tech entrepreneurs and teaching him that they can do well and do good when they have a sales event, a liquidity event, focus on growing your business. And then you can be perhaps have such a large buyout that in one case, David had a member that had a $250 million, $250 million as amount to donate to charity. He also had some members that donated in the thousands. So join us. It's a fascinating organization. It filled a void next to the giving pledge from Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. It's filled a void next to 1% for the planet which is totally about environmental issues. This is about individuals and entrepreneurs. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start out with I love this question, which is, who is David Goldberg and what is your purpose? Which is ultimately going to say, why are you doing what you're doing? Yeah, it's a good question. Who is David Goldberg? Hmm. I don't know, like <laughs> some silly kid trying to make a difference in the world, I guess, at the, at the heart of it. I'm someone who like was born a white man in California the 80s and won the life lottery in every respect, being born the right color in the right place at the right time in the history of humanity. And, uh, and for a long time, I didn't really realize that privilege that I had because I sort of grew up in a pretty working class family. And, um, and when, I, when it became clear that being born a white man in California the 80s is a huge leg up, I sort of decided that I needed to do more than just focus on me and how much I could get. And, uh, and that was back in 2009 or so, where I've made that decision to focus on how much I could create and give back rather than how much I could accrue and possess. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Um, so I guess that's who, who I am, like an idealist, maybe, in some respect. <laughs> if someone said to you, what is your purpose? What do you think your purpose is? And maybe it was different yesterday than it is today. That's an easy one for me to answer. I'm trying to eradicate market failure. And it's what management consultants would call a BHAG, 
a big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, but I think that um, directionally aiming to eradicate market failure is is one of the more important things that people can do, that I can do with my time. That's my purpose. Even if I'm not successful, attempting to achieve it is is worth it's worth the effort. Well, I think you've gone very, very far since that that first time I met you in New York, surrounded by all these emerging tech brilliant people. Um, because at the time, I think we talked a lot about does technology have a heart? Yeah, you were a bit forlorn because you you like to bring people together for connection making and for accelerating yeah. their visions. But I think we had conversations, and you kept saying, "But what about?" you know, impact on society, the environment, what about giving back? And that just didn't seem to be part of the cohort. What do you think happened? Because the numbers, what's happened between 2020 and 2021 is huge for you. Yeah. So let's just, this isn't like a little group here that, that kind of raises, you know, 50 million. It's, it's a lot more. Yeah. So we have um, more than 1,600 members now. I think it's 1,620 something, if memory serves, from 34 countries who've committed about $5.7 billion to go to charity. Okay. So let's just talk about how it works. Because it's not that like when they're running their company, they're, de- they're designating a certain percentage. Yeah. The, the model is uh, entrepreneurs tend to start businesses t- to solve problems. And the best entrepreneurs solve the biggest problems. Our goal here is to get people who are natural problem solvers committed to uh, giving back when they have success. So to join Founders Pledge, a founder, investor, or venture capitalist will lock in their future intent by committing some percentage of their personal exit proceeds to go to charity as and when they make money. The idea being that like, we discount future value pretty significantly. Um, and it's much more difficult to give away zeros in a bank account than it, uh, than it is to commit to be generous at some point in the future as and when you become wealthy beyond imagination. We started you know, with this really simple commitment. In the early days, we were talking about the minimum percentage that people had to commit to give to. And interestingly, we were anchoring people to this very small number. Um, and when we stopped anchoring people a couple of years ago, um, sort of their natural generosity shined through. That's interesting. And, and so what, what year did that begin? Did you make that pivot? It was three years ago, three and a half years ago, even. And, and, and we saw um, the average pledge in the early years was like three and a half, four percent. The minimum pledge was 2%. And then when we removed the, the notion of a minimum 2% pledge mm-hmm. from our language, the average pledge shot up to 11%. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting because, you know, the, again, the conversations we had way back when, which is, you know, this is about the money and making money and then having the next idea and making more money it was mm-hmm. like whose pot of money is bigger than the next, but something shifted. What, what, what was shifting in this community? I think when you make a lot of money, and then it sort of sits in you know behind walls and it's it's controlled by a singular person or a small group of people who all look and act and talk and think the same um people notice society notices and there was a pretty uh aggressive shift a couple of years ago that was maybe we shouldn't be celebrating tech in the in the way that we had been maybe maybe technology plays a negative role in the world as well, as much as potentially a positive one. And at the same time, the numbers were getting really big. Markets were expanding. People were making more and more and more. And at a certain point, money has decreasing marginal happiness um, (laughs) when you've made enough of it. Right. Well, it it does. I mean, there's been a fair amount of study in this space. And basically, we tapped into something, I think, at the right place at the right time where people just wanted to be more generous. They wanted the mechanism through which to say, this isn't all about me. I can, I can give back. I can do good as I, as I do well. What happened during COVID? COVID was a really interesting time for us. So we, I expected the economy to go pretty, pretty sideways pretty quickly. And I, and, and I also expected that 
in when when economies turn south, philanthropy tends to dry up because profits also decrease and so there's less tax advantage in giving to charity. So I made some pretty deep cuts on our team and downsized our team and let people go in the right way, gave them uh, two months of two months of notice, two months pay, furlough here in the UK. Um, uh, and really sort of hunkered down for what was going to be a, a long winter. Um, and it was the right decision first. Um, but second, it was um, this pandemic brought out the most, the, gen- the generosity of people, right? Um, and it spurred people to action that I, I, I had been chasing in some cases for years who just didn't feel like the time was right for them to get involved because they were too busy, too in the weeds, didn't have the headspace to focus on philanthropy. But this pandemic just put everything into stark contrast, which was just like, again, like if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? And um, and people reached out. You know, it, it did help that we wrote a research report on global catastrophic risks in 2019, focusing on pandemic preparedness um, and, and seemed to be pretty prophetic as, as this whole thing unfolded. So a bunch of people reached out, ended up joining. And then, you know, when you put a couple trillion dollars of money into the economy, the market is pretty frothy. And we've seen the results of that over the last couple of years. And so we, you know, we stopped doing live events, in-person events and focused on delivering value for our community and, and growth just sort of took care of itself. And, um, and at the end of 2020, um, we launched a new product called Equity for Impact, aimed at um, supporting companies and the employees of companies on IPO track to you know, give back of their success, regardless of whether you're a founder or the most recent employee. As a company goes public, people do really good from it. And, uh, and so Equity for Impact just enables um, these employees to give back as their founders are doing so as well. And it was just this sort of like right, right sort of time for, for growth to happen. And it did. And it did. It did. And it did. So, so thank you. For, I love Equity for Impact. So, so you know what I'd love you to do? I want you to pitch me. You want me to pitch you? Yeah. I, I want you to, you know. I guess technically you could make a pledge. Well, no, but no, but I want, no, (laughs) I could, um, but I want, I'm coming to you. So somebody introduced me to you when we're having like a meal, we're in London. Um, it's post COVID per se. We're feeling a little bit freer and safer. Um, and I have this amazing company. It's still fledgling. And so I want you to, what would you say to convince me to do this? Cause I'm, I'm totally focused on my company. I've got everything there. So that's why I'm saying pitch me. As you should be. You should be focused on your company, right? You want to keep the main thing the main thing so that you can be as successful as possible. So Founders Pledge is not thinking about the present, but it's thinking about the world that you want to create. We're a community of founders, investors, and VCs uniquely committed to impact, um, all of whom have made the same commitment that as and when they, they sell their business, they have some success in the world, they give back. And... I'm sure you know, Carol, both the fictitious Carol that I'm pitching and the actual (laughs) Carol that I'm talking to. Starting something from scratch is a lonely endeavor. It's really hard being a founder, being a CEO, often deeply isolating, often rife with mental health issues. And being a part of a community that stands for something beyond just the, the creation of more wealth is important and it's powerful. And it turns out that... Um, having purpose, having values that animate you tend to result in better outcomes for, for the people and f- for the world. And so why would you join Founders Pledge? Well, because it's the right thing to do. If X, then Y, right? X is if I make a lot of money and sell my business, Y is then I donate Z percentage of what I make to the things that I care about at that point. And we exist as an organization to empower you to make better decisions using data. Now, if you're a very successful entrepreneur, and I expect you to be at some point in the future, a good tax advisor is going to tell you, you have to donate to charity. And they're right. You should. It's the, it's the tax prudent thing to do in most cases. If you're going to donate to charity, you want to donate in the most effective way possible. Founders Pledge is here to make sure that the, that choice is made using data. It's radically rational. And it's driven by the things that are most important to you maximizing certain things, minimizing others. So we exist 
um, to help you make better decisions using data, like a family office for your philanthropy, except our family office costs nothing and is biased to impact and impact alone. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about the VC community because the VC community is not known for its heart. And so you might have a founder and it's a guy or a gal or whatever. And they're thinking maybe they have kids, maybe they don't, maybe they have friends, a community, a special issue. I can see them ultimately over time wanting to share their wealth, but VCs, I don't know. So how did you convince them? So I think there are some VCs, uh, that get a bad rap, and, and others deserve it. Um, the, pe- <laughs> okay. the, pe- the people that have joined Founders Pledge and are venture capitalists, I think, are uh, obviously the, the the better the better the better group. So I have found that the really forward thinking, thoughtful, deeply passionate VCs to be some of the most generous and um, and impact driven people I've ever encountered. Um, and I'll, I'll call out um, a specific fund and two partners there that I really admire and respect. Um, 50 years. Uh, they're a deep tech fund based out of San Francisco. Both of the founding GPs, Ella Madej and Seth Bannon, are, um, are ex-entrepreneurs. And their mission is to solve some of the toughest problems that we face as a species by investing in, in businesses that have transformative potential. So they're a, a, a commercially driven venture capital fund animated by impact. Um, and I think that they're some of the smartest, best investors out there. So signing them up was like as, as was a conversation, right? They're, they already believe in making the world better and giving back. They see the transformative potential of technology and are investing in entrepreneurs who have social missions, but are achieving them through purely commercial aims. And so it would seem perfectly aligned with you. Yeah. So it would seem that the more who more um, entrepreneurs that they are signing on, that are most of them are they making the referrals? So it's it's you know it's a positive. Yeah. So we we t- we tend to happen to share like a, a meaningful percentage of their portfolio. Um, they happen to be our members as well. Yeah. I mean, so the 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 goal with VCs is. Um, you know they're they're a leverage mechanism for us. So we we want to, with the right VCs, grow our community based on who they invest in. So um, it can be a really beneficial relationship where we send people their direction. And I'm not speaking about 50 years here. I'm speaking about VCs in general, like the VCs that we've signed up. We like to send them uh, interesting entrepreneurs that have joined Founders Pledge who um, we think um, fit their funding criteria, and um, and we encourage. Uh, those partners who've signed up to encourage their investees to also join Founders Pledge. You talk about, you know, immense good. I love that in terms of your your mission statement. It's a really operative word, right? So Founders Pledge, you know, if it's just we encourage entrepreneurs, empower entrepreneurs to do good, yeah, it doesn't really mean anything, right? No, that's too weak. It's not David. It's not David Goldberg. it's It's also like, it's not the right thing. You know, we're pretty utilitarian in the way we think about the world. Um, all else equal, we'd rather do more good than less. And um, and our mission statement, as mission statements should be, has no fat on it, right? Every word is necessary for that for that statement to work. And immense is the operative word. We don't just want our members to do some amount of good. We want them to do the maximum good potential. So let's talk about a couple of case histories. Sure. So can you talk about a couple of founders that came in and that they have uh, sold their companies and what are they doing? We work with a couple of hundred entrepreneurs now who've had liquidity. And I'm not going to speak about specific people. I'll speak about specific people, but I'm not going to tell you who I'm, th- uh, I'm talking about. So a lot of people come to us caring about climate change or like have it, having realized that an earth that can't support human life is probably not a very good place to raise a family or uh, think about the future Um, and are really passionately animated about climate change. And like most people sort of new to thinking about this tend to focus on sort of the standard suite of things that the average person knows about, which is like carbon offsets or tree planting. And we are pretty averse to both of those things. Well, not averse, like carbon offsets, we don't think are particularly useful and tree planting. We don't think moves the needle really at all. Um, And so our climate change specific philanthropy work has focused on policy and advocacy. Um, So let's assume that the entire six 
almost $6 billion of pledge value becomes liquid all of a sudden. And let's also assume that all of our members entrust us to allocate the entirety of that capital to how we see fit. And let's also assume that we decide to invest all of that money in climate change work. It's a drop in a bucket and the bucket is floating in an ocean and all of the water is philanthropic money focused on climate change. How do you do anything when you're talking about such vast flows of capital, hundreds of billions of dollars, potentially trillions of dollars in the coming years, um, put into a sector to, to sort of like, we're not doing direct work isn't really going to change anything. So we want to focus further upstream. And so our climate philanthropy has focused on policy and advocacy such that with a couple million dollars, we expect to be able to do hundreds of times more more good per dollar than a direct intervention. Because as you say, you, you know, you really want to leverage effectiveness. Completely. That's the whole, that's the whole point. Like, let's take a, a pure commercial scenario quickly. And I, I'll, I'll, I think you're going to get the right answer here. But let's say I have um, two different funds, fund A and fund B. Okay. And you have a million dollars to invest. And fund A returns 4% per year compounded annually and fund B returns 11% per year compounded annually. Okay. Now the funds are really similar, except fund B doesn't have like arms or tobacco or something bad in it. They're all like all as equal. They look really similar, except one returns 7% more per year and they compound annually. Which fund did you invest your million dollars in? Fund A that returns 4% or fund B that returns 11%? Well, we hope the 11%. All right. Of, of course, you, you invest in Fund B because the difference is after a decade, Fund B returns, what is it, a million and a half dollars and fund, fund A returns half a million dollars. It's significantly better over the course of time. It's a non-decision because it's so obvious. Yet when it comes to philanthropy, we make the wrong decision nine times out of 10 because it feels emotionally satisfying to make a bad decision. And we sacrifice impact. We don't we tend not to think about impact in the same way that we think about, you know, return on on commercial investment, but it's essentially the same thing. Philanthropy is investing. And what we get back is not money, we get back impact, people's lives, happiness, or a, a, a reduction of disease burden. These are the same concepts, but we're trying to apply them to things that are historically averse to measurement in the same way and have less clear feedback loops, but they're the same. Okay. So I know you have a climate cohort. Yeah, we do. Want to talk about the climate cohort? Why did you create it? And then I want to go back to another example. The climate cohort was uh, when there's enough people that care about an issue and, and, and our team uh, is good enough in that issue to support it, um, we want to bring our members together and empower them to share learnings, grow together, make better, more coordinated decisions, um, and... Uh, and it's just been like an overwhelmingly successful group. It really struck me that in the beginning, you weren't talking a lot about, I want to create this community that is really going to be impactful. And I'm not even sure in the beginning that you were going to create a climate cohort. You also created the hub and you're also, you're really educating and you're creating events and you're really having people, these brilliant people learn from other brilliant people and it's both their business advancing, but as well as their social impact. So when did that kind of epiphany come to you? Start of COVID basically in uh, March, April of last year sort of made clear to us that our current operating procedure, which is in a normal year, we'll do 75 events all over the world for our members, from small dinners to global forums to retreats and lots in between. And when we realized that the world was essentially going to stop meeting in person for an extended period of time, we decided to accelerate plans uh, to transition to a sort of a more digital format. Yeah. Um, it's been mostly successful, I think. The Hub is... Uh, you know, we built in a couple of months and now has uh, you know, meaningful active daily users. Um, but it's, 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 it's an enabling tool as opposed to a, a replacement for human connection. So um, we, we think and talk a lot about philanthropy and charity in a very data-centric way. And we have been accused of having no heart, having no humanity. And um, I, I think that's probably not, not correct. 
but our our events are 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 like the humanity like we we bring people together because you know um putting incredible people in the same room and and giving them provocative sort of and provocation and interesting things to talk about tends to result in really uh, fascinating outcomes and better coordination um and so philanthropy is deeply human um it's deeply like emotional we all give because we want to make the world better um but that doesn't mean that it needs to cloud our judgment like the heart brings us to give and the head should inform how it's done so you bring your members together in community and can you tell a story about something that came out of that interaction that was pleasantly surprising we did a retreat last year um, where we brought together about 30 or so entrepreneurs and played a giving game. So a giving game was, <laughs> do you know, you know what a giving game is? No, no, tell me, tell me. Okay. So a giving game is I had a donor who was happy for us to help him allocate his capital. And so in, in a room of 30 entrepreneurs, I said, all right, guys, I've got $20,000 to give away. It's a very generous donation by a guy named Eric Bergman. And um, and I want you to help me allocate this. And so we split the group up into tables um, and, uh, and asked them to think about um, how they would allocate this money if they had complete control over it without sort of any framing. So they, they started talking in groups. And then I said, okay, um, I'm going to give you four options that you're going you're to have to pick one of these options of where you'd like your table to your table's vote to go. Um, and we presented um, uh, an AI safety organization. We presented a mental health organization. We presented a biosecurity research institute, and we presented um, one more. Let's let's come up with a fictitious. I, I don't remember what it is, but let's call it a, a, a malaria intervention. And, um, and I gave a, a short overview of each organization. Each table got handouts. And then the table discussed for the next 15 minutes which organization they liked the most. They voted amongst themselves. Whoever got the most votes at the table, that's what the table's vote was. And then we had each table vote on the whole. And there were, I think there were six tables, something like that. Um, and had each table justify why they chose what they chose. And at the end of the day, that, that was the plan. And before everyone voted, I asked the room to um, top up the pot. And I said, okay, you don't know where the money's going to go yet, but I'd like for each of you to, on the back of your name card, write down an amount that you'd be comfortable donating to one of these organizations. Um, and then we collected all the name cards. And I figured we'd bring in a couple thousand more pounds or dollars, um, some, some small but meaningful amount of money. Um, and it quadrupled. So we went from having $20,000 to having $80,000. And ultimately, uh, the mental health charity won. That's mm. what, what got the most votes. Um, but it was interesting to see how people needed to justify decisions with scarcity. So like this was the, like the money, the resource is scarce and you have trade-offs, right? And each person at the table was making an active trade-off between what their gut wanted them to do initially, which is like without the framing of here are the four charities, to, and then thinking about the four charities and narrowing from them and interacting with other people. It's this really interesting process where you like you have to make tough decisions. And when you give something to someone, you choose not to give it to another. And that has implications. There's an opportunity cost. And and it was just it was interesting in a couple of respects to see the organization that won. I didn't expect the mental health charity to prevail. But it was also interesting to see um, the generosity of a group of people that didn't show up to this retreat to give money, but to, they showed up to be to learn. Because yeah, these were people still in the weeds, still growing and scaling their businesses. But when given the opportunity to be generous, people can be radically generous. But you're also incredibly analytical. That's right. So it's inter interesting that you're teaching when you talk about effectiveness for immense good, that what I'm hearing you say is, let's not just do this from our gut and our heart. Let's take the analytical approach that we have to our businesses through your smarts and your community and your offerings, and let's do a head and heart combination right. here to be much more effective correct that's great that's great 
this is how people make decisions, right? They've made their wealth by being by the numbers, by looking at the data, making decisions, iterating, making mistakes, learning from them, becoming better, and just like constantly following the data to where it leads. Why would we ask them to behave any differently with their philanthropy? With their philanthropy, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about the demographics of your members, uh, male, female, you said, what, 34 countries, I think you said? Is that That's correct? right. Yeah. And also, I'm curious about age. Is this something that is more a millennial or is it all ages? It's all ages. So our, our, our oldest member is in his probably late 70s now. He joined in his early 70s, at the, I think 2015. So he must be 76, 77. And our youngest member joined when he was... 17. His mom had to sign his pledge. <laughs> his mom signed his pledge. And how was a male-female breakout? Uh, it's getting better. 30-some-odd percent female. Oh, great. Still underrepresented, um, given the demographics of the world, but definitely overrepresented, given the demographics of the technology sector. And how about but people of color? Better than the tech sector at large, but again, um, I think it's something like 15%-ish. Okay. And I, and I know you want to grow it. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of our KRs is to have a more diverse and representative group. So let's talk about your challenges. So again, in the early years, to me, it was like, oh, it's going to really happen. I don't know. And then you had the giving pledge out there um, and you had 1% for the planet. And so talk about, you know, establishing your brand and your model and perhaps one or two of the biggest barriers that you had to overcome. So I see the people that came before us, like the Giving Pledge, as, as total trailblazers. I'm in awe and admiration of what um, of what the Giving Pledge has accomplished. I mean, Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett really did something special um, and paved the way for us to exist. I think one percent for the planet again, like a pretty tremendous initiative. One um, percent for the planet aimed at corporates. Giving Pledge aimed at billionaires. Um, nothing really for the community that we're operating in. We're, we don't work with companies. We work with individuals. We work with them, you know, from the very early days through to when they leave this world. We've actually mm. had a couple of members pass on over the, over the couple of years that we've been around. Um, but it's, it really is, you know, end to end. We'll, we'll start with people when they've raised a series A, series B and work with them their whole lives, ideally. Oh, you start that early. We used to start earlier, but now we we tend to focus sort of Series B plus. Okay, so that that's so you start conversations when they're A, and then they start going to B, and then you start getting serious about signing them up. Once once people have raised a Series B, then that's when a, a serious conversation starts to happen. It sort of is that turning point when it goes from like gambling to like there's going to be some <laughs> some meaningful outcome here in the vast majority of cases. And then we work to sign people up sort of when they've, when they've raised a series B typically. And regarding the types of businesses, what percentage have purpose at the center, you know, exist to truly solve an issue in the world, social or environmental, or so some are and some aren't. So I'm just curious about the complexion. So it's an, it's an interesting question. I would say that the vast majority of companies do not have purpose at their core. Now, would they say they have purpose at their core is a different question of if they do or they don't, right? So I think there's lots of companies that believe that their purpose is uh, really socially impactful, but um, but isn't really. If you get, sort of like when you get down to it, that's like not why they exist. There's a really small number of businesses that have the scale ambition that that our our members do, and and explicitly are aiming for a social mission. It's very rare indeed. And in fact, the people who are already social need us less than the people who are purely commercial. So you're not so you're not signing a B Corps. No. No. Okay. I mean, would I sign up a great B Corps? Sure. I'm interested in 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 finding value-aligned entrepreneurs who are going to get us our worldview, derive value from what we do, and are hopefully going to make a lot of money that we can help them to give away as effectively as possible. Um, let's talk again about another great success story. We had a a guy in in Sweden um, who's a great entrepreneur, became uh, a good friend of the Founders Pledge, who um, sold his business, 
uh, and 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 was really just sort of like unclear about what he wanted to do in the world. Sort of our our ideal person, right? He had a pretty open mind and was sharp, like a, a smart guy. And we tend to view the world in one of three distinct worldviews, or people tend to fit in one of three distinct worldviews with their interest areas. So they'll either have a current generation focus. So like our, our current generation is uh, affects anything with respect to people that are alive today, mental health, to global health and development, to homelessness, to arts and music, education, poverty. This is all sort of a current generation worldview. This, the second worldview is one focused on non-human animals, animal welfare. This tends to be focused on ending factory farming and the sort of the industrial meat ecosystem. Um, and then the final worldview is one that preferences future generations, what we call long-termism. And so this is um, probably the most controversial or more, most difficult for people to wrap their heads around, but I, arguably one of the more important ways to think about the world. And this is, you know, um, ensuring that humanity doesn't go extinct in the next couple of generations. And, you know, while it may have may seem far-fetched, it's, it's actually not that far-fetched. Um, we're at a, a really interesting point of human history. I think, you know, a hundred years from now, if you look back, you'll say, wow, right around 20, the 2020s was when, you know, things changed pretty radically. Um, and so um, we went through a value discovery process with this gentleman. And that's basically trying to understand how someone makes decisions, what underlies their motivations, the values that underpin how and what and why and where. And, um, and it turned out that th- this guy was really interested in ensuring that the world that he leaves his daughter is one where she can be happy in, where, 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 her, where her kids and her kids and their kids will have a, like, will have a, a safe place to live. And so he ended up giving um, in, into um, trying to avert global catastrophic risk. And so over the course of time, gave a, about $600,000 to a couple of organizations focusing on preventing human extinction. One was uh, the Center for Human Compatible AI. And this is to ensure when we develop artificial artificial general intelligence that it's aligned with humanity's interests um, and doesn't um, result in you know a, quite a bad world. Um, and the other is the Center for International Security and Cooperation, which is part of Stanford, and they are focusing on biosecurity and global health. This grant was back in mid two thousand nineteen, and in mid two thousand nineteen, putting money into biosecurity was like a pretty out there thing to do. And in mid-2021, much less out there, right? So biosecurity is like preventing zootropic pandemics. And wouldn't you know, we've just had one. Um, and so we've been, we've been thinking about this space for a couple of years now and, um, and funding organizations trying to prevent the worst biosecurity risks from, uh, from coming about. That's that's a great example. So so thank you. So for our not-for-profit listeners mm-hmm. who want to be on your radar screen, um, how might they do that? Pretty hard to get on our radar screen. Um, so many of our members uh, want to recommend organizations that they've identified to us, and we really um, we appreciate their desire to do that. We really appreciate the great work that many nonprofits do, but our process is one that um, uh, tends not to lend itself well to inbound interest. So um, when we do a cause area investigation, um, we'll identify the area that we want to work in and we'll look first at the the sector itself, understand um, uh, if we think that the sector is is worth actually um, investigating in depth, looking at sort of the scale and the size of the issues, the tractability of the solution sets, and the ne- the neglectedness of the uh, the cause area compared to how large it is. And if once we've identified on a, on an area, or we've identified an area like global health and development, then we'll look into specific types of interventions that have research and data to support the efficacy. Uh, of them. Um, and then we'll dig into the charities themselves. And so our process tends to be pretty top down. And as a result, having a charity reach out and say, hey, we'd like to be considered sort of puts the cart ahead of the horse in a way that isn't really very helpful and um, and cuts against our process. So all of that said, if what you're doing, you think 
the examples that I've given around long-termism or animal welfare, specifically related to factory farming um, or global health and development, focusing mostly on poverty alleviation, neglect tropical diseases, malaria prevention. You can send an email to info at founderspledge.com. We'll say thank you and I'll give a Someone will, will, will give a, a shorter version of what I've just said in text form, and we'll put you on a list such that when we, uh, when we review the area, we'll keep you in mind. So from the early years when I knew you, you've really evolved to an organization, your consultancy, per se. I mean, you re- your advisory consultancy and such, you have, you said, over 40 um, colleagues. Yeah, about 40 people now, yeah. At what point did you decide that you really needed to have that growth to provide those layers of insight, information, and recommendation? Good question. So about two and a half years ago, we decided to go from a scrappy startup to trying to become more institutionalized. I know that term doesn't, you know, tends to evoke images of like stodgy offices and, you know, Roman pillars and stuff. but. Um, but, it, you know, in order for us to accomplish our mission, to empower entrepreneurs to do immense good, the building blocks of success need to be close to each other, right? Aligned well. And the sector is really fragmented. And so rather than trying to rely on external partners to support pieces of what we needed, I decided we just needed to become vertically integrated and do it all ourselves. And so we do a bunch of things that I think are could be their own businesses in, in and of themselves. So we have this sort of growth company where we get people to sign up. We have a community where we do events and we do programming and we do education. We have thematic funds like our climate change fund and our animal welfare fund and our global health and development fund. We have a donor advised fund that is the infrastructure for deploying capital globally seamlessly, which is a huge cottage industry that we're trying to disrupt. Then we have our own research team that does charity sourcing, vetting, diligence, and impact analysis. And then we have an advisory team that consults and helps our members give better. Six different things, seven maybe even. Um, but it, but together, they are full stack philanthropy, and it just makes it better. That's your tech stack. Yeah. Now, for members, do, do you proactively seek members, or is it now all word of mouth and people know about you? Um, or is there somebody, gee, I really want that person to join up? It's a bit of both. So we uh, we set expectations when someone joins our community of what we want, mm-hmm. like what we expect back of them. We don't cost anything. There's no business model, right? Like it's deeply lost making Founders Pledge. And what that means is I, I have to raise money every year to, to fund Founders Pledge operations so that, our, so that what we do from end to end is zero cost. Now, the zero cost is, is truly zero monetary cost, but we want our members to evangelize for us. And so when, when someone joins, we ask them to um, nominate three other people who they think would be a good value fit for our community, who would drive, who would drive value from what we do. Um, that's one way. And the other way is um, when we hear about an entrepreneur, a company that we think is doing really exciting stuff, or we think that that founder or those founders would really benefit from being a part of our movement. We'll we'll see how we can connect to them. So the nice thing about doing something really uh, beneficial for free is that people want to help us. And so LinkedIn is a powerful prospecting tool for us. So when we find someone that we want to talk to, we'll go out to our, our members who we think know them and ask if they can make an intro, if they think they'd be a good fit. And, um, and that's sort of primarily how it happens. We're unfortunately getting down to the bottom of this conversation because I really lo- love it. But I'd love to know what is the largest amount in a liquidity event that you had working with the entrepreneur to donate? And what's the smallest amount? I think our, our listeners are going like, hmm, sounds fascinating, but love to know the range. The largest amount is about $250 million. Mm. And the smallest amount is less than 1000 Look at that. Okay. And so that takes me to pivot to you also had non-members, I think, for the first time getting engaged. And I, I think it was over $3 million that they donated. What was that all about? So I think aligning incentives is like one of the most powerful things that we can do as a society to fix problems and behaving in the right way. So the research that we do, we publish. 
and we make available to everyone. You don't have to sign up to Founders Pledge to pay anything. It's not behind, hidden behind institutional paywalls. All of our research is immediately accessible to anyone in the world who goes to our website, founderspledge.com. It's all there. And so non-members um, who follow our research and say, hey, thank you so much for... Well, send an email saying, I just made a donation to Charity X as a result of reading your research report. Wanted to let you know, thank you for doing this, right? We'll take note of that. And that'll feature in our impact report. There's lots of other advisors out there in the world as well, in, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in the US, who utilize our resources to advise their clients. And when they do, they let us know. And, um, and we track that as part of our passive influence. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I didn't know that about your research. So I will make sure that I can stay on top of that and I'll make sure we cover it in our newsletter and such. Thank you. You're welcome. We've talked a lot about the incredible growth of, of um, your organization. What haven't we covered that you want to share with our listeners, whether they're an entrepreneur, whether they, they're a B Corp and they want to just share it with you know, some other people they know who are and don't have to be B Corps, but they could be entrepreneurs um, or non-members who want to look at your research and help you grow? The journey has been really hard. Looking, from the outside looking in, it's just been this sort of very sort of hockey stick-like growth over the course of the years. And, it, and it's thankfully sort of looked like that uh, inside as well, but it's also been really hard. So like growing something that doesn't have commercial incentives and good financial feedback loops is really tough. Lots of charities in the world, um, try really hard, uh, to, to sort of be successful with, without real, um, commercial incentive, like running a charity is really hard. It, and it's and it's just as lonely as running a business, except you don't have the potential mega upside. Um, and um, so that's one piece. Is like this, this this gig is hard. It's worth doing. And the other is you know I'll say to the people who um, are on the fence about if they should be giving back, if charity is the right thing, if they wonder if they have enough, if they've made enough, they've aggregated enough before they start to do to do good and give back. But questions I have are if not now than when and if not you then who right mm -hmm. excellent go live your best life and be your best self your more most generous self um and if that means for you joining founders pledge then please reach out to us and if that means starting a great charity then please do that and if that means just building a great business and giving to your local community then do that that's wonderful. That's really, that's a great ending, David. So you have come so far since we had that conversation on the roof in the cold and you said, I have to have you on the board. And I was on the board for the beginning, but now you have totally accelerated since I've been off the board, but you're still a friend and I love what you're doing. And you are helping entrepreneurs answer this question. What is the power of their purpose? So thank you, David Goldberg. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.